podcasting from Phoenix, Arizona, the home of year-round flip-flops, the nation's largest city park, and Cactus League spring training. This is The Saver and the Spender, a weekly podcast about budgeting and money habits from both perspectives. And now, here are your hosts, The Saver and financial coach, Kelsa Dickey, and her husband, The Spender, Michael Dickey. And welcome, everybody, to The Saver and the Spender, Episode 9. It is now, I think, live where it's January, what, 17th? 17th, Is that right? Something like that. So we're halfway through January, a little bit more than that, and uh, we're back at it again. So anything you want to say before we get going? I do. So for those of you watching on Facebook Live, we've actually recorded another podcast, and it is out on Stitcher, iTunes, and our website. We did not go Facebook Live when we did it, though. So uh, please just make sure that you, if you do want to tune in, go to those places and listen. Um, For those of you who are used to following, listening while we're doing Facebook Live, we have done some. We just didn't do it Facebook Live. So, Yep, perfect. Okay, well, let's start with what's trending today, and that is uh, a very interesting article from USA Today from the 13th of this month. Uh, And the title is, Millennials Earn 20% Less Than Boomers Did at the Same Stage of Life. So I don't, I'm not going to read the whole article, but I've, I've taken some bits and pieces and uh, just kind of the interesting statistics and that kind of stuff. So with a median household income of $40,581, millennials earn 20% less than boomers did at the same stage of life, despite being better educated, according to a new analysis of Federal Reserve data by the advocacy group Young Invincibles. Millennials have half the net worth of boomers, their home ownership rate is lower, while their student debt is drastically higher. The analysis of the Fed data shows the extent of the decline. It compares 25 to 34-year-olds in 2013, the most recent year available, to the same age group in 1989 after adjusting for inflation. Education does help boost incomes, but the median college-educated millennial with student debt is only earning slightly more than baby boomer without a degree did in 1989. The home ownership rate for this age group dipped to 43% from 46% in 1989, although the rate has improved for millennials with a college degree relative to boomers. The median net worth of millennials is $10,090, 56% less than it was for boomers. Yikes. Yet compared to white baby boomers, some white millennials appear stuck in a pattern of downward mobility. This group has seen their median income tumble more than, get this, 21% to $47,688. Um, median income for black millennials has fallen just 1.4% to $27,892, and Latino millennials earn nearly more than their boomer predecessors to $30,436. And uh, overall, they didn't offer any analysis on what has caused or why this has happened. Okay, so first I just want to start by saying that there was a lot of numbers and all of that stats, so I think we should put not only a link to the article, of course, in the podcast notes, but um, kind of put some of this in there, just type it in there. Um, There is just so much good meaty information here. So I know it was probably a little overwhelming if you're just kind of listening. So I just want to go through and sort of pick it apart a little bit. Okay. I, I feel like there's this double whammy that's happening and it makes me really sad because not only is their net worth of millennials lower than boomers. So what that tells me is when they graduate, they're starting off further behind already. So their starting point, if you think about like a boomer would be at square two and they're at square one. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they're starting off with a less stable financial position is what that means when their net worth is less than what a boomer is. Um, And on top of that, they make less money than what a boomer did by quite a bit. Um, 20% less is what the article just said. Mm -hmm. So just to kind of recap that. So not only are you starting from a less stable position, but you are earning less to get yourself into a better 
financial position. Does that right. make sense? So it's kind of like this double whammy. I'm not sure, you know, one of those by themselves is not good. And then literally you put them together and, you know, we, you know, they talk a lot about being baby boomers uh, retiring and how they're not ready for retirement. And, you know, I wish I could fast forward you know, 50 years and see where the millennials will be during retirement. Because if they're starting off with a lower net worth and they are making less money to create that worth, I'm just really curious to see what will happen. Yeah. It'll be interesting. Yeah. There's also some studies done, which we should probably, you know, talk about this at a, a future podcast that they tend to be savvier though, actually, millennials mm-hmm. do. So maybe, uh, you know, it's not doomsday. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. Um, it just means that they got to work harder. They have to be savvy. You know, right. Um, the other thing that I wanted to point out was um, this part about where it it talks about the different ethnicities, and it's just so funny to me the way things are always worded. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. So I'm just gonna kind of rehash this a little bit. Is compared to white baby boomers, um, white millennials appear stuck in a pattern of downward mobility. The group has seen their median income tumble. More than twenty one percent to forty seven thousand six eighty eight. So it's like this really dramatic sort of description for white millennials, yeah. I think. But then it says median income for black millennia- millennials has fallen to twenty seven thousand eight ninety two. So mind you, white millennials are in this tumble to forty seven thousand. Millennials has just fallen to twenty seven. So yeah, I mean, such a hu- yeah. or yeah, black millennials. Sorry, uh, you know what a huge difference yeah. in total pay between the ethnicities. That that's very alarming to me as well. Mm-hmm. I think that's very sad. Um, so and again, you know, we say that there's really no the analysis does not offer a cause to the decrease or it's it didn't go into that. It's just right. really the numbers. Right. Uh, I found this article fascinating. Actually, yeah. It really is. Um, they they talked. They only interviewed one millennial, um, and she said that they're you know my mom was married and had kids by the time uh, she was my age right now, and I don't do that. And uh, our goals are different, and what is achievable not now is not achievable. Uh, uh, what is it was achievable then is not achievable now. And all that kind of stuff. So she had a lot of excuses about why, what their goals were, but still, that's not justification of. The other thing that I think about is, you know, my mom didn't go to college. She was able to get a job right outside of college that nowadays you need a college degree for. So, mm-hmm. you know, as a social worker, so she, and then she had that job her whole life. And it's one of those things where you go into a job maybe sooner. So maybe you start making money sooner. Uh, and that job is something that now you actually maybe need to take on student loan debt in order to get that job. And so that's why I think you're starting off at sort of a lesser financial position because you're taking on debt and earning income later in life or right. starting to earn that money later in life. So yeah. uh, it's very interesting. I get, you know, I'm not surprised by it, yet at the same time, it's, uh, I like seeing the numbers attached to it. Yeah, you know, very interesting. So let us know what you guys think. I'd be curious to to hear if you compare where you are now compared to your parents at, at your age and uh, millennials, if you knew this, what do you think? We'd like to hear mm-hmm. from you. So, mm-hmm. Excellent. Cool. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's uh, move on to the financial rule of dumb. And this is where I give Kelsa a uh, traditional financial rule of thumb and she uh, flips it on its rear and says, uh, nope, that's dumb. 
<laughs> so this one is uh, use the 2410 rule for of thumb for buying a car. You should pay at least 20% down, finance for more than for no more than 4 years and the payment should be less than 10% of your income. Oh gosh. These rules of thumb kill me. Yeah. Really they do. So I, this is the biggest reason why I don't like this rule of thumb is uh, I think a, a much healthier sort of philosophy to have with your car situation is to always plan to buy your next car from a better financial position than what you bought your current car. The idea is that a lot of people might have this dream, if you will, of sort of buying a car with cash. And I think that's wonderful. And I would love for you to have do that as well. Um, it doesn't usually happen right out of the gate. So maybe the very first car, you only have $2,000 down. Strive to make it so that the next car, maybe you have $10,000 down. And then the next one, maybe you buy with cash. Okay. I think if this is your rule of thumb for your whole life, then I don't think we're striving for enough. Because if you put 20% down on a car, and then the next car you buy, and let's say it's 10 years later, you still only have 20% down, keeping in mind that you have this car that you could probably trade in or sell private sale and get some money. 20% down isn't challenging yourself enough. It's not a high enough standard for yourself. I think you could probably do even more than that. And that's really what you want to be striving for. If you strive to continuously have a rule of thumb where you're, it's a progress rule of thumb, then you're always going to be challenging yourself to do even better than what you're doing right now and not settling for what you do now as the sort of the status quo. So um, yeah, and the other thing, I mean, I could poke a lot of holes in this, but the other thing is, um, you know, if you buy a car that's a, let's say you just buy a $10,000 car all the time, like you don't need a fancy car, you buy pre-owned, like you don't drive a lot, you drive it forever. It's probably easier to say you're going to have 50% down or even buy the whole thing with cash versus if you are soccer mom, you've got five kids and you need a huge van and those are sometimes $50,000. This is also a lot harder, right? So it really just depends on kind of what car you buy, how long you keep it for, your financial cash flow position and all that kind of stuff. Um, And really, I think the, the better rule of thumb is to simply focus on one that's about progress with your car. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. Good. That's mm-hmm. great. Okay, we're going to quickly brag on Tammy. Oh, yay! Yay! Uh, so our budget brag today is for Tam from Tammy, and she said, "I made it through my cash period and had money left over, not much, but a few dollars to spare, which is a win for me." Yay! So this is cash is so tricky. So if you switch from using your debit card all the time or putting everything on a credit card, and you first switch to cash. It can feel so amazing to end that pay period and be like, oh, I have money left. You know, it's like, here, I bought all these things, I got to enjoy it, and I still have money left. It is such an amazing, amazing feeling. And I know so many of you experience it. So, a couple of things that I want to point out here I really do think cash for a lot of people is crucial. The category where I tend to see the most leakage, and what I mean by leakage is, um, Spending money without it really adding value to your life um, is this area of day-to-day spending. So groceries, eating out, stopping at the coffee store, stopping at the gas station, getting an energy drink. It's kind of the nickel and diming category. I tend to see this be the category where a person could spend 100 one week and 500 the next 
and they don't even realize it, first of all, and it's not like they're any happier because of that, okay? So this tends to be the area where we spend purely for convenience sake. It makes our life easier sometimes, but it doesn't really add value. It doesn't make us happier, right? So uh, taking a family vacation, paying off credit card debt, um, doing... um, I totally just lost my train of thought. Oh, buying gifts for somebody that you love, you know? Those are the kinds of things that actually do add value to our life where going out to eat two times versus 20 times is not going to make you happy usually. So this is the area where you tend to overspend the most. Um, And so because of that, when you can get to taking out cash where you actually have money left... I'm telling you, it feels so good. It feels very liberating. Um, and so I'm just really, really proud of you, Tammy. Yay. Yeah, if job. you guys do want to switch to cash, um, one of the things I recommend, everybody comes in and they say, you know, when we start talking about the cash thing, that they always say, oh, I could probably cut back some though. So I'll take out less cash. Don't start by taking out less cash than what you think you might be spending now. Start with a realistic amount and then slowly back it down over time. I want you to experience a very quick win. I want you to experience some cushion here. I want you to experience that it can be easy, right? Until you get the hang of it. And then as you start to really refine your skills here, then you can slowly start to take out less cash, but don't do that right away. Okay. So don't set yourself up for failure in other words. Mm -hmm. Great. Now, cool. say somebody is d- doing cash and, they, and they're in a situation like Tammy where they um, have money left over from that pay period or cash period or whatever they're doing. What do they do with that leftover cash? Oh, good question. So one of the, there's quite a few tips here about cash. Uh, one thing that people do incorrectly when they try to take out cash is they say, I'm going to take out this amount of money and it's going to last me as long as possible. That's not good enough, okay? So you have to set an end date, first of all. If you say, it just has to last me as long as possible, whether it lasts you one day or one month, you're successful. And so it's not a good enough, it's not a clear enough expectation, okay? What I usually recommend is that people take out cash on a payday, and that cash has to last you till the following payday, okay? Or if you take it out weekly, let's say it's, I'm going to take it out every Friday and it has to last you till the next Friday. So you always want to have an end date to it, okay? So that's rule number one. The second tip that, or the second area that I see people tend to uh, go incorrectly here is where if they have money left from the prior week or pay period, they, um, they, they then lower the amount of cash they take out the next pay period. So let's say, really quickly, whenever I throw out numbers on a podcast... These are just examples. I have some clients take out $100. I have some clients take out $2,000, and I'm not kidding you, okay? So this, these are just examples. I, I'm always afraid when I start using numbers that people will, some people will say, oh, she's not talking about me because I need to use way more cash than that. And then our, other people will say, um, oh my God, that number is so high. Like, I don't even spend that much, so I don't need to do cash, okay? So this applies no matter the number, Okay. So let's say your number is that you take out $500 every payday. So every two weeks, you take out $500 and it lasts you until next payday. And let's say it's payday again and you still have $100 left, okay? What you don't want to do, and this is a quiz question that I ask in every workshop, and are you amazed at how many people get it wrong, right? Okay, so if you have $100 left, you still take out $500 on payday. And so you start that pay period with $600. It's not that you start every pay period with exactly $500. And that's one of the things I see people do wrong all the time. And here's what happens. If you think about it, life does not happen like this in a very linear, straight fashion. And people on the podcast have no idea what I'm doing right Mm -hmm. now because they can't see me. So that's why you need to tune in live. But anyway, (laughs) um, every week, 
is not the same as the week before. So if we have $500 for a pay period, you will absolutely have some pay periods where you have money left and it was easy and it seemed like no big deal. And then you will have some pay periods where the $500 is gone before you know it and then you still need some groceries. The way to pay for the expensive pay periods is to carry cash over from the prior one. So it's kind of like a rolling number as opposed to where you simply start every week, okay? And if you think about our life, in most people's lives, you know, we will need to go to the store and we'll do great for a long time. And then all of a sudden, one time every other month or once a month, depending on where you shop, we have to get laundry detergent, dishwasher tabs, paper towel, toilet paper, tissue. It's like all the one-time things, cleaning supplies, they all need to be purchased at the same time. And it's easily $100 more that trip, right? And so the idea is that we don't even feel that because every time we take out cash, we just roll over a little bit more, roll it over, roll it over. And then bam, we have a really expensive pay period and we wipe it out. The other thing that will happen um, is you will have some weeks where let's say maybe you're at home sick or maybe you're just working like a dog and so you're not really going out to eat with friends, you're not doing anything, maybe you're staying home, sleeping a lot because you're not feeling well and so you barely spend any money. But then chances are if you have one of those weeks, you're gonna wanna go into the next week and you're just like, you wanna get out of the house so bad. You're like going crazy. So you might eat out or go out with friends more that week. And so really the idea is that it doesn't matter. Okay, so carry some over from one week, carry it into the next, use that extra to kind of buffer it, and really it just makes it so it's nice and even in your checking account. Yep, okay. and, that, and that is one way that using cash in, in, in the way that we tell people to use it is, be, is I, I'd say better than the cash envelope system that Dave Ramsey likes is that if you have an eating out envelope and a groceries envelope, um, you can't, you're not supposed to rob Peter to pay Paul. Yes. Right. But when you just have your cash and you take just the cash out, it doesn't matter because it's all going and coming from the same place anyways. Yeah. Uh, to kind of expand on that, and this also answers your question, Lexi. So Lexi asked on the live feed, she said, do you suggest taking out cash for everything we spend money on for the month aside from bills? Uh, no. Um, I, I actually consider expenses in three categories. So the first is all of your bills, which is essentially the fixed and recurring expenses, those things. There's a due date happens every month, and if they fluctuate, they don't fluctuate a ton. The second category is all of the day-to-day spending. So these are the things that tend to happen every month, but there's no set schedule necessarily, or there's not a due date to it. So this is the groceries, the eating out, um, and I'll give you a couple of other examples in just a second. This is the category I represent, I use cash for, okay? And I'll come back to your comment in just a second, remind me. Um, And then the third category is all of the non-recurring and random expenses. Those are the expenses that don't happen every month, but when they happen, they tend to happen big. Those are, I call the whammies. It's the clothing, because most people don't buy clothes every single month at a set amount. Um, Car repairs, a medical bill, gifts, um, travel and vacations. Those things I don't recommend using cash for. Um, And we can talk about in a future podcast sort of what the strategy is for that, okay? Yeah. But so really what we're talking about right now with cash is sort of the day-to-day spending. So how do you know where a category or where an expense goes, which category? And it's a little different for everybody, so let me give you a couple of examples. Um, Michael gets his haircut once a month because he has short hair. His haircut is part of our cash because it's we don't know when. Sometimes it's three weeks, sometimes it's four weeks. Depends on how shaggy you get, right? Mm -hmm. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Depends on how much you want to postpone getting your haircut. That's part of our cash because it's going to happen every month, but there's no really like due date to it. Okay, 
Um, if you have longer hair and you maybe get your hair done every six months or maybe you just get it colored and cut every six months, that's it doesn't happen monthly, but it ends up being a really big expense when it does happen. That would be in the third category, which is a non-recurring or random expense, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are some things, we tend to have sort of like a $20 rule of thumb, which means if we have, uh, let's, let's say I go to Target and I see a $5 pair of flip-flops. I'm probably going to use my cash for that because we can absorb a $5 thing and it's not a big deal. Like we can still buy groceries, we can still go out to eat, all that kind of stuff. But then if we have, if I'm going to go to DSW or Naturalizer or something like that, I am going to use my clothing fund for that because I can't absorb a $100 pair of boots in my cash and still be able to buy groceries and toiletries and all that kind of stuff. So we sort of have like a $20 rule of thumb, if you will. Um, and then what was your question that I'm supposed to come back to? The, um, I don't remember now, not the envelopes, but the what I asked earlier mm-hmm. was carrying that extra $100 over. Yes, okay. So then I would say if you're continuously having money left, then what you want to do is slowly start to back this off. So let's say your number is 500. If you find after like three pay periods or so, maybe four, that you still have, you're just continuously carrying cash over, then you, what you want to do is slowly do 480 and do that for a few pay, pay periods. If you still have some left, do 460. Never do anything super dramatic because like I said, you can have one pay period that was super easy, whatever the case may be, and other ones that um, are really just hard. And you kind of have to let those trial things run out first. I know what you were saying about the uh, partitioning your cash. I do not believe in the idea of like overly compartmentalizing our life when it comes to money. I just don't think that that really sets people up for success. And so really the sort of the old version of the cash envelope system and you know, the thing is, is like you, you mentioned Dave Ramsey, but really this is a system that has been around forever. What clients usually say to me is, oh yeah, my grandparents did that. This is a system or an idea that has been around for a very long time. He just loves the idea. And so he, it's been made popular by him, but, um, the idea is that you go into the bank because you need to make sure you get the right denominations because you're going to come home and you're going to have a grocery envelope and you're going to have an eating out envelope and a dry cleaning envelope and a grooming envelope and a dog envelope and clothing envelope and so forth, right? Like literally this, you've got like a stack of envelopes, okay? And you're going to put money into each envelope. Um, And then the idea is that you spend out of there. I find that this system doesn't work very well. Okay. So some people really love the level of restriction that they get from this. What I find happens is people will do it for a while and then they tend to abandon it because here's what happens. I think that the way you manage your money needs to be simple and straightforward and quick and painless because if you, if it's not, you're probably not going to do it for a very long time or you're just looking for one sort of distraction or setback to make it so you don't do it. And if you have to physically go into the bank every payday or once a week and to get the right denominations, that's one more thing where it's like, oh, it's raining out today, I don't want to. Or I don't want to have to get out of my PJs or something. Yeah. You know, like You can come up with some excuses. Um, and the other thing is what happens after a while too that I see with this is that you'll have a week where you'll end up, you know, borrowing from the eating out envelope and putting it into the groceries or taking from the grocery envelope and sort of putting it in eating out or being like, oh, I'm just going to borrow a little bit from this dry cleaning envelope and go out to eat with it. What happens is you end up compartmentalizing your life too much, in my opinion, and you end up not letting life really happen to you. So, I mean, I think about our life, and I'm just going to be really honest about this. 
There are some weeks where we do a meal plan, we go to the grocery store on a Sunday, we go with a list, we prep all of our food ahead of time, we prep all of the baby food ahead of time, we pack our lunch every single day. I joke that that week, and this has nothing to do with me, but I joke that I am like a domestic goddess that week, okay? I'm like super organized. And then there are some weeks where maybe the baby is sick, maybe I'm traveling for work. We are purely in survival mode, right? And because of that, we're probably doing takeout all the time, but we probably didn't even make it to the grocery store, right? So for us, and this is what I recommend for most people, because I feel like most people's lives are simply that way. Like they're not perfect. And I don't think it's okay to expect your life to be perfect. I really think we need to find a way of managing our money that really complements that sort of fluidity and, you know, part of our life. So I feel like I'm really getting on a soapbox right now, but I mean, I'm getting really heated up right now. Right, like I'm great, getting super passionate. Okay, I actually good. just wrote down, so like I'm making my notes, like in the future, maybe in the next couple episodes, we need to have just a cash Okay, episode. yes, because so, obviously I'm getting super yeah. pumped up about this. <laughs> Geeking out here, people. Okay, um, so the for me, we take all, we just lump it all together. I don't care whether it goes to groceries or eating out or dry cleaning or the dog food that we buy at the grocery store. We take all of our cash out. It's all lumped together. That way, no matter what happens, we know that we're staying in line with what our plan was because as long as we're spending cash, we're not doing anything wrong. We can let life just sort of happen to us. Not a big deal. We can have those bad weeks, if you will, and our everything else is not going to unravel when it comes to the budget. Where I feel like if, if for us and for a lot of my clients, I see this time and time again, if we had a grocery envelope separate from an eating out envelope, et cetera, I feel like what we would do is we would set ourselves up for failure. We would end up borrowing from one or the other and then feel really guilty about it, beat ourselves up. We'd have to have a conversation of why did we eat out so much this pay period and blah, 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 when really we did it because life kind of threw a whammy at us, yeah, <laughs> you know? Exactly. Um, so I think it's this really balanced way of when you take all of your cash out, first of all, the other nice thing about it, choose an increment of 20, you can go right through the ATM. Okay, just go through the ATM. If you have a daily withdrawal limit of $300, most, that's the default for most debit cards, change it. You can call the number, 1-800 number on the back. I think Wells Fargo even allows you to go right online and do it in your profile or in your settings and change it to whatever you need it to be so that way you can literally go through the drive-through, take out 480 or whatever it is, choose an increment of 20, that way you can take it out, um, put it, you know, come home. It doesn't matter where it goes for that pay period. You simply... You know, roll with the punches. You know, I think it's this very balanced approach between having a plan in place, but a knowing that that plan can't be perfect or it can't be super rigid and strict. Right. Okay. Yep. So, what's what are some people saying on there? Can we can you read those? Oh yeah, Demetra says I have to agree. We tried the envelopes for a short period and quickly realized it just wasn't working. Okay, I'm gonna read. Go scroll up here. And then Lexi says, um, that makes sense. Michael kind of addressed my question as well. Wasn't sure about the envelope, quote unquote, ideas and categorizing the things I spent on groceries versus eating out, for example. Well, I hope, I know, Lexi, you weren't able to stay on the call the whole time. I hope that you heard this last part because I think that that might have even expanded on that quite a bit more. Um, 
Whoa, dude. Sorry. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so hopefully, and it's so, Demetra, I'm glad to hear that you struggled with the envelopes. I feel like most people come in and they say, oh, when I, as soon as I say, have you tried cash before? They say, oh yeah, it doesn't work for me. Literally nobody wants to do it. Um, and I say, okay, wait, 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 let me, let me try, let me show you a few different ways that we can do it that are easier, faster, much simpler in general. Um, to me, it ends up being a, a much better compliment to yes. a person's lifestyle. Yeah. So. And, I'll, and I'll say just from, from my own personal experience of using cash, when we, and being the spender of our, the, our couple, um, that when we kind of get, there are just sometimes every couple months where we get off track and, and start to use the debit card a little bit too much and don't go get our cash for the week. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, We're perfect. No, we do it. Let's, <laughs> let's be honest. <laughs> we do that, and I, ha- I hate it. It stresses me out. Really? Because I, like... I don't know if I've gone over on our groceries or our, our you know, our, our spending. When you have cash in hand, you can see, oh, yeah, I have uh, $20 left. Well, I'm going to back off on some of the extra special food I wanted to buy or, um, you know, really hone down and make some really inexpensive uh, bulk meals rather than the fancy expensive meals I wanted to make or whatever. So, right. And then there are times where I feel like, too, we, um, if it is... You we're doing awesome. Like we'll buy the steaks at the grocery store and like the expensive ones. We won't buy, you know, the ones that are on sale or whatever. Like we'll buy the nicer food because we we think, oh, we've obviously done really good with our cash. And so it can be liberating. It doesn't have to be where you're always cutting back because of it. It just makes it so that the decision is very easy, like you were saying. Right, so yep. and yeah, we always for some reason we've tried it where you know, the online grocery pickup where you purchase online and so you use your debit card. I mean, we've tried all of these different ways and it ones that tend to lead you to using your debit card. And we always go back to just getting back to the cash because it is mm-hmm. always easier. We always find it where we, we don't overspend, we don't make mistakes. It just becomes so much um, better. Yep, it does. Okay. So really fast, Demetra uh, just posted, I wish I could show you Carmen watching you guys. She keeps waving and saying hi. Hi, Carmen. Hi, Carmen. Hi, mm. peanut butter. Aww. Blow kisses at us, Carmen. Hi. We'll okay. edit this out of the podcast. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, yes, we will edit that out. Or maybe we should just keep it. Okay. Um, all right, let's all right. move on. So off the so- cash soapbox. That was a great segment. I'm sorry. I got a little passionate about that. Okay. I don't even know what, how we got there. Um, we're still talking about Tammy bragging. Um, all right, so uh, Dave's uh, question, the listener question is up, and Dave asked, how much on my paycheck should go towards retirement? My company matches what I put in each paycheck with a cap, therefore. Uh, therefore, should I have the max match amount be taken out each month? Good question. So I know Dave, and I know that his answer is yes, that he should have the max taken out so that he can get the match. Um, Because I know that he is in a good, solid financial position, and so this is definitely something he should do. Uh, Some things that you might want to consider for everybody else who's wondering how much they should do. Um, I love investing to the match, of course. Like As long as you're getting the match, the idea there is it's either a 50% return or a 100% return on your money in the sense that some companies will do, um, you know, for every 1% you put in, they put in a half of a percent. So that's obviously the 50% return on your money. Other people, it's like a dollar for dollar match up to 3% or any number of, there's a whole bunch of combinations there that a company can use. Free money, basically, right? Yes. 
So it's it's good. That's a great return, and uh, you should definitely take advantage of it if you're in a good financial position. So if you're not, here's some of the things you might want to consider if you... And if you have these things, I don't recommend investing. If you want to invest, I want you to feel very motivated to invest. I want you to feel fired up to start contributing to your 401k or whatever the case may be. So use that as your motivation to get a couple of these things cleaned up so that you can start, okay? The first is if you have a payday loan or a title loan or any of those really nasty, ugly loans that charge you. I had a client come in yesterday she had two of these and they were at 240% interest. Oh Notice, I know, it really hurts my heart, Ooh, that, seriously. That's my stomach a little upset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't worry, I'm going to help her. Okay, we're, we're getting those cleaned up, don't good. worry. So you know who you are, hopefully you're listening. Um, the other, um, so if you think about it, 240 is higher than 50 or 100. So even if your company is giving you a dollar for dollar match, it's costing you, these loans are costing you more than that money. So we need to get these out of your life first and every dollar is going to count. We need to just, those things tend to... And every dollar counts here. So even if you're contributing and it ends up being $25, I want that $25 per paycheck to go to one of these loans, okay? These types of loans tend to charge you a... um, a daily interest. So as soon as you can pay something to it, it's going to mean you owe less interest the very next day. So when you have these types of loans, this is a little side segue, I'm sorry. Um, I really need you making payments constantly. Make as many, if you have an extra $5, you you go online and you pay an extra $5 to it. Okay. Um, because they often charge daily interest, and so it's really going to help you. So if you have one of those loans, I, I really don't recommend putting towards your 401k, even if there is a match. The second reason, and this is a little bit more of a gray area, is if you have no immediate access to savings. So if you have no money in the savings account at your bank, if you have no liquid money, okay, so even $1,000 is okay, $2,000, $5,000. If you have nothing in savings, I want you to get some money in savings first before investing because if something happens, you're kind of like one whammy away from something happening, right? And if you are putting all of your money or all extra money into investments without savings and one of these things happen, in order to access your investments, there's a penalty there or like a loan origination fee if you're going to do a 401k loan or it's just not as easy and straightforward. So really I would say step one is get some quick money in savings and then start investing right away after that and and doing it to the match. Okay. But let that be a very short term goal. You know, it doesn't have to be a ton of money, like I said, but we just want to make it so that that's your backup plan cannot be your investments. Okay. Right. Makes sense. Good question. So Dave, yes, max that sucker out, baby. Perfect. Okay, let's go to the main topic for today. And and today we're talking about budgeting for a wedding. So we have at least two friends that I can think of that are getting married this year anyways. Um, and and so, um, you know, they might want some help on how, yes. to bu- how to properly budget for their wedding. Yes. Okay. Ooh, wedding budgeting. Okay. Here is just one thing I need you to know. If you are a man or a woman and you're planning your wedding... At some point during this process, you are going to turn into a crazy person. And I say that with love, okay? I say that with affection and respect 
and all sorts of goodness, but you are going to turn into a crazy person, okay? Um, You just got to have that awareness right now. So (laughs) I have never had a bride stick to her wedding budget. Never, okay? And because at some point, something happens, like I said, and they turn crazy, okay? And here's the thing. I was the same way. I think part... Aw, see, he just said no. Um, I was. was. At some point, part of me thinks that this is sort of a rite of passage, and then part of me thinks, but I don't want it to be a rite of passage. That's why I want to talk about it, right? Um, I did the same thing. I think most of us who have planned our wedding look back on it and say, ooh, I probably shouldn't have spent so much. And here's the thing is I loved our wedding. I loved that day. I loved everything about it. I have such fondness for that day, but I still think, gosh, what better things I could have done with that money? You know, Um, and I think most people that I talk to feel the same way. Um, Oh yeah, Demetra's planning her wedding. Oh, this is a perfect (laughs) um, podcast for her. Anyway, um, so I can still look back on it and say, "Man, I could have done something different with that money, right?" So, but at the time, I too was a crazy person and thought that so many things that aren't really important were crucial, okay? Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk about a few tips and some of these exercises, we are going to create a uh, wedding budget document for our website right with the podcast notes. Please go and download it. Fill this out if you're in the process of planning a wedding um, or jot down some notes now while you're listening. So there's a few exercises that I want you to do. The first thing when you're starting to plan is I want you to focus on kind of your your big three, or maybe there's your two big things, which are the two or three things that are your non-negotiables. These are the things that for your wedding are the most important to you. Some things like the food, that was our thing. Like I just wanted people to say the food was good, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Um, Maybe yours is the venue or your dress. Ladies, some people like they just want, that day's about them and they're going to be gorgeous, okay? So they're willing to spread more on the dress. Maybe it's the music for the DJ or um, the gifts for your bridal party. This can be any number of things. Maybe it's the honeymoon. Maybe it's not even the wedding itself, but it's the honeymoon. That's kind of what I wish we would have put our money on. But anyway, um, I digress. That was like 11 years ago, so <laughs> we have very different priorities now. Yeah, absolutely. I think a vacation sounds blissful yeah. right now. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, okay, so focus on your two or three big things, and here's what I want you to do is get those scheduled, get those reserved, get those finalized as soon as possible because those are the things that you're most likely willing to break your budget for, and so get those in place right away. That way they're kind of locked in. Okay, so get those done first. Make a list of what those two or three things are um, if you don't already have them written down. On the opposite side of that, I want you to write down what are all the things you really don't care about. So maybe it's a tradition that what most people have in their weddings, but you really could care less. Write it down. And this list can be long or it can be short. Um, Maybe it's like the favors on the table or the things that go over the chairs, chair covers. That's what they're called. I think so. Um, They cover chairs. Chair covers. Um, Maybe it's the cake topper, okay? Maybe it's the flowers. It doesn't, your list can be as short as long as you want, but make a list of all the stuff you don't really care about. And this, the reason this is really important is because you will have a, um, at some point, whether it's your mom, a mother-in-law, a relative, a good friend that will make a comment that will make you feel like this is important to you. And yes, I should probably do that more, or I should probably spend more on that, or oh, that is a crucial part of the wedding. 
and it's not really something you care about. It's just that you're feeling all of these opinions from everywhere and it can be very tempting to listen to them, okay? Mm -hmm. So this list kind of keeps you in check. Um, And this is the list where, just like the opposite of the non-negotiables, the non-negotiables, you get done first, okay? Get those locked in right away. The items that you don't care about, do those last, okay? Because you don't do those unless you have money left because those are the things you really don't care about. So don't even try and focus on those until last. There are some, oh, one last exercise really fast is I want you to write down on a sheet of paper the amount of money that if you spent it, it would make you sick to your stomach, okay? So like every client will come in with a budget, like, oh, we want to spend $8,000, okay? And I'll say, okay, that's fine. Let's, we'll, you know, start crafting a budget. And I'll say, if you went over that, um, what number, if I said you spent 10000 or you spent 12000 what number, if I said it would just make you so sick to your stomach? And then I write that number down. And I want everybody to know this number because as you're getting closer and closer to that, like I said, something will happen a month or two before the wedding where throw all logic and rational thought out the window and you will get closer and closer to this number. And instead of feeling sick to your stomach, you will rationalize it to yourself. You will tell yourself you have to do it. There's no other choice. It's necessary, all this kind of stuff. And so what happens is when you're sane and logical and uh, unemotional about this, that's when you kind of want to lock that number in. Okay. And you want to even just make that very present in your mind. Um, so let's see. So make a list of all the things. Um, there are some resources that I want to point out um, that have some really great wedding budgets. Um, weddingwire.com. I actually like that one a lot. Yeah, it it's cool. super user-friendly and you can kind of uh, move things around. It's awesome. Weddingwire.com. Costofwedding.com is just really good to kind of uh, get some awareness around some numbers. And then of course, the knot.com. The knot is K-N-O-T.com and we'll link to those in our uh, podcast notes as well. But those are all really some good, helpful websites to gain some understanding. So when we get uh, close to your wedding, most people in general don't make good financial decisions when they're feeling rushed or panicked, mm-hmm. okay? This is the same for wedding planning. So you will be very normal and logical up until probably two months prior. And then what happens, and I think this is normal, there's... Um, you've been making so many decisions and you've been planning it for so long and it gets close and you start to say things like, I don't even care anymore, just do it. So somebody will ask you a question like you know, a mother-in-law or a mom or whoever's helping you, a friend, and they'll say, hey, do you think we should do this? And at this point, you've been making so many decisions around this day that you just start to get exhausted from planning it. you know. And it's like the amount of energy you've given to it, there's just not much left anymore. And so what happens is you kind of say things like, oh, I don't even care anymore, just whatever, you know? So plan for that to happen. Um, The other thing that I would recommend is um, when you first create your wedding budget in any of these softwares or on the worksheet we're going to give you, it's very normal when you first create it to have a cushion. So it's going to say your budget is ten thousand. You've spent seven thousand so far, okay? And it's going to like try and tell you you've got three thousand left. Woohoo! And you're going to get all excited. Do not allocate that. Do not because what happens is you need if you allocate that and then you go into once the wedding gets closer, you'll still need to buy other things, right? And so now you've spent your ten thousand, and then there's still other things, last minute type things that simply happen. Where the better approach is, here's my numbers. Even if it says I have some left, that's going to be my 
oh crap moment money. That's going to be when I get really close and I start to get irrational and illogical and I, Kelsa says I'm going to be a crazy person and I am. That's my crazy person money. Okay. Mm -hmm. So don't allocate it too early because really that's the money that needs to go towards sort of saving your butt later. Okay. So anyway, anything else that you can think of that we need to add that we talked about? Well, I had just a couple of things that, that I thought um, made sense to me and and just kind of looking back at our wedding that Mm -hmm. I thought I'd put out there. But um, the first thing that I would suggest, and I think a lot of people are doing that now, and I wish, really wish that we would have had this resource when we got married was, is Pinterest. It seems like most weddings now are more DIY. We're a DIY society now, right? You can make anything, do anything, find out how to do it, do it yourself for a lot cheaper. I cannot, but most yeah, well, women most, can. Yeah, most people can. Most or, people can. But, you know, use Pinterest. Find some some cool things that you could spend thousands of dollars on, but you do it yourself for a couple hundred dollars, yeah. save some money, and use that somewhere else. Um, you can have... Uh, you know, you made, you did make your own uh, bouquets, though. Yeah, you're right. And I was going to say, along with that, is maybe you're not crafty yourself like right. me, but have a party and like have your girlfriends over, and you guys all sit around and do it, and you watch The Bachelor at the same time or something yeah. like that, yeah. right? So we all sit around and do the crafts together. And I think it could be more quality time than spending yeah. money. Yeah. So it's fun. It's an activity. Um, it's uh, girl, guy, family time, whatever you want to call it. Um, but then you're getting something done on the cheap. And yeah. it's a lot better. So right. use Pinterest. Uh, it's you know I, I think having um, more whimsical weddings is kind of in fashion too, mm-hmm. rather than really formal stuffy kind of like how ours was. Um, <gasps> it was formal honest. and stuffy. It was. It was a little bit. Your <laughs> um, you can have a little bit of whimsy in your. Um, in yeah. your reception and or wedding or both. And it can be much more, more personalized now where it's yes, not exactly. like you have to follow the etiquette of wedding planning. Like yeah. you, I feel like ours was, we did things for etiquette as opposed yeah. to now you can be a lot more creative yeah, exactly. and personalized. Yep. Uh, so number two on my list was that when you're making your guest list and you have your guest list finalized, there is that rule of thumb that 25% of your guests won't come. And you'll think, no, this person is 100% coming. Everybody on here that I have on my guest list is going to come. Um, and then it comes down to it, and then it's 25% don't show. And it, I think it's really true, so plan for that. Yeah, um, that's true. So it's just something to plan for. Um, you know, like Kelsa said before, but looking back on our wedding, we wish we had a, a, a smaller wedding, spent less, and you know, used the money that we did spend on a honeymoon or more fun or more friends or something like that. So, or a house down payment. Yeah, or, yeah exactly. Yeah. So in hindsight is always twenty twenty, and looking back at it, but, and you never want to, and I think people at 10 years down the road, they'll look at the wedding and they kind of think the same thing. Like I wish we'd have done our wedding differently because now these are our options and we were crazy in the head when we were planning <laughs> our wedding. So, um, but, and, and you don't want to think of that uh, when you're planning your wedding, but I think for the most part, Right. Think about that. Yeah, that you, know, you could always go smaller. You could always go more personal. Um, you could always use your money for other things because, in the grand scheme of things, for me personally, um, that it's it's about getting together with your family and friends and celebrating their relationships with you and your new marriage. Sure. And and you don't it doesn't have to be super expensive. To exactly. Do that. Now that I think about it, one thing that I just thought of is. You never really hear from a person who has a small, intimate wedding and say, I wish I would have done a big, lavish wedding. But you do talk to people who have big, lavish weddings that say, I wish I would have done it smaller. Absolutely true. So I feel like going into this, it's really unlikely you would ever regret going smaller. 
but it is likely that you could regret spending too much money. So go in there with just this awareness, right? Like that's all we're really talking about this for is that, you know, if it happens, you're normal. We've all done it. But at the same time, go into it with the awareness and hopefully it's not to the extreme of it either. Yep. Yep. Okay. And the, the last thing I wanted to put out there is that you know use use the budget the 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 budget that we're going to create is basically your plan and the the more that you plan at the start of your 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 wedding and your budgeting and your planning phase the less that's going to come out the last couple of months you're like oh I forgot about that I have to add that back in the budget or mm-hmm. um, you know the things that you don't want to include in your plan are the things that. Um, when somebody says, oh, what about you doing this? Here's a cool, really cool idea. And you're saying, like Kelsa said, oh, yeah, just do it. I don't care. I, yeah. you know, the more that you plan beforehand, the less is going to get out of hand. Totally agree. In the budget. Mm-hmm. Good point. Cool. Great. All right. Uh, our last topic for today is Carmen's Corner. Um, and that's when we talk about kids and money and some, some tips for you. So today's Question is, when and how should you start talking to kids about borrowing, specifically like things like a mortgage? Good question. Um, so first of all, the Carmen's Corner is inspired because everybody comes in and says, my parents never taught me about this, okay? And so my challenge really and what I would love to change about our world is that we all talk to our kids more about money and teach them while they're in the safety and security of our own home um, and not just teach them how not to do it. Okay, but also how to do it, right? So, because everyone says like, oh, I'm, I'm helping them to learn from my mistakes. Well, that's great. That's a great start. But we want it to even be even more productive than that, okay? Healthier than that. So how, when do we start talking about borrowing money? This is a really good question. And I would say, generally speaking, maybe around the age of 14, um, it can be earlier than that if you've got a very sort of astute young child or, you know, young adult, Um it can be earlier than that. So that's not obviously a hard and fast rule, but around that age, you know, teenager, 13 maybe is when you want to start. Um, and I, the the biggest two examples that I think you should use are a mortgage and school loans. I don't love the idea of talking about a car loan. I don't, just because it might be normal in your house to have a car loan, we don't necessarily want them to think it's considered normal at a young age. Okay. You know, they don't need at 16 a car loan. So, you know, chances are if they can buy a car with cash or we can all sort of come together, we'll talk about that's actually write that down. A really good topic is uh, purchasing a 16 year old's first car and all the ways of doing that. Um, So we will talk about that. But um, we don't want them to think that they need a car loan in order to have a car. Okay. So it doesn't have to be commonplace, but really more likely a mortgage and student loans. And really these things you don't have to have either, but they're simply more likely. Okay. Um, So I think a couple of things is that, you know, the, the best tip is that a loan is someone giving you money so that you can buy something and you are going to pay it back over time. And because of that, because you get to buy something now and pay for it over time, it's going to cost you more money, okay? You can start throwing out the word interest, but you don't really even need to use that word right now, right? So you can, but the idea is that as you pay it back, it's costing you more because the benefit that you received is that you get money now for something you don't really have the money for, okay? And so one of the best things you, sh- you can do is pull up an amortization table for your mortgage and show them what this looks like. So here's, you know, great example is this house. Homes are the largest financial transaction most people have in their life, 
Okay, it's the largest financial transaction you're ever going to have. And so you want to explain to them that in order to buy this house, we obviously didn't have X number, $250,000 sitting. And so the bank allows us to pay for it over time, pay them back over time, and then go to your bank website, wherever your mortgage is, and pull up an amortization table. And it really shows them that here's how much we borrowed, and here's how much over time this is going to cost us because we have to pay them a little bit more every time, okay? Making, showing an amortization table makes it very visual, okay? And a couple of things. You don't even have to use the word amortization table, okay? You can say, this is our schedule for how we pay it back and how much it's going to cost us, right? Um, Here's how much we're paying them, and that can be the interest part. Here's how much we're paying them, and here's how much we borrowed, okay? And amortization tables show you the difference. So it's the principal versus the interest, okay? Um, The second tip that I would say is let them see um, sort of your your plan for paying it off. So if you have a plan, if it is a student loan that you've got from college or if it is a car loan, let them see that you do have a plan in place for not waiting the 30 years or the five years or however long it takes to pay it off. Let them see that you actually try to pay things off faster. Even if you're not, let them see that that the plan normally is that you try to pay off a loan faster than what it's supposed to be paid off, okay? That is what you want them to get that takeaway, that this isn't something just because they give you 10 years, you take 10 years, okay? Finally, at around the age of 14 or 15, I actually think that a really great way to demonstrate this for a child is to let them do this with you. Okay, so think of something that they want that they maybe earn money for. Um, Let's say they want a bicycle and it's more than they have. Okay, Um, maybe it's a new computer or a video game console or something for their bedroom or whatever. Try to pick one thing. And I want you to sit down with them and show them here's the cost of the item, here's how much you have. Mom and dad, we are willing to loan you the difference. Under these terms, okay? Now, here's the thing. You want to come up with a payment plan. You want to show that to them. You want to show them that if you are loaning them, let's say, $100, that they're actually going to pay you back $120. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Here's the thing. Whenever I talk to parents about like teaching their kids about money and it has to do with like taking more money from your children, parents can get a little defensive of this. This is not about you making money off your children, okay? You can literally put this in a savings account for them if you want, okay? It's about teaching them the practice of how this works, right? right? So I'm not saying take money from your children, okay? It's okay. You can... I can say take money from your children. Okay, parent parent tax. tax. That's right. Okay, Um, but let them see. So there is a payment plan. Maybe they have to pay you twenty dollars a week, or and at the end there's actually a fifth payment because, or a sixth payment in order to make up for the, you know, the fact that they owe you more money. Um, Let them do this with you. Now, this cannot be something that they do all the time. They can't be constantly coming to you and saying, "Mom, can I take out another loan? Can I take out another loan?" That's not the purpose of this. But it's simply to allow them to experience what this is like with something very small, something where if they skip a payment with you, there's a repercussion there. Um, if It's like your way of guiding them through this and teaching them how it works, but in a very small, simple way. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. Cool. Cool. You know, something I was thinking about last night, I just saw on, on TV, there's a commercial out here in Arizona for a title loan place, and mm-hmm. they actually... T- they show you how much of a better deal it is at their place compared to the other places. And that 
um, how in 14 months you're going to have your $2,000 loan paid off. Um, they don't tell you the math, but the, but you're paying an extra, I, I think it was $800 in interest, but they don't tell the math. So in 14 months, you'll have paid off your $2,000 by paying $400 a month. Yeah, versus the other place, like you would have paid it off longer, but you were paying less or something. Something. Yeah. So, But still, I mean, they're basically telling you that for this title loan for $2,000, you're going to pay $800 in interest. I see what you're saying. But, but and, I think that's just a good example of how yeah. interest works as well. Like you can say, right. so let's do this math. If your kid is, is able to do that kind of math. Right, right, right. Like, if they're not afraid of like numbers and all right. that, you know, they're so good say, at that hey, part of it. Yeah. Did you hear what that commercial said? They said that in 12 months, by paying this much per month, you're going to pay off your $2,000. But how much extra do they have to pay by using a title loan like yeah. that? Yeah. Because I bet you, I know you're using the numbers as just an analogy, yeah. but like $800 on a $2,000 title loan is, yeah. it's probably more like uh, 8000 <laughs> You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, like it's no, insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, yeah. so it's ridiculous. Just so. the, even $800 on 2000 is insane. Yeah, but, yeah right. Um, so it's just like, like seeing those type of commercials and using that as a teaching moment is I think just something else that you can you can show a kid. Right, like real life, real time, yeah. absolutely, yeah. yes. So, um, and when you pay, like I said, using it, that they see that you are paying it off faster. So you can make a car payment, you can show them that your car loan says you need to pay 295 but you're going to pay $300 to it because you want to pay it off faster. Let them see that. Just really small everyday decisions or transactions that are happening in your world, just use it as an example of teaching them a lesson. Yeah. Yes, I love it. Good. Cool. All right. Well, that is the saver and the spender for this week. Next week, we are going to be talking about buying a house and paying it off as quickly as possible. Ooh, yay. Okay, fun. It's a good one, huh? All right, tune in. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to The Saver and the Spender. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our web address, www.fiscalfitnessaz.com, to your family, friends, and colleagues. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, follow us on Twitter at I Am Fiscally Fit, and on Facebook at Fiscal Fitness PHX. Join us next time for another edition of The Saver and the Spender. 